Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Look, I'm sorry, okay? I mean, this week has been kind of crazy, like all aspects, at work and outside of work, and that's pretty much it. It's pretty much what I do. I just couldn't get this done yesterday. I mean, not get it done and work out and get some sleep so I could go into work and even quasi-function, but it's all good. Here we are. So the saying goes, the only thing constant is change. Unfortunately, most people don't like change, but sometimes change can be a good thing, right? Theoretically? On today's episode, first we're going to change the way we work, and then we're going to change the entire system. And remember, after the closing bump, I'll recap how my weekly change has gone. So, everyone gather around on your own, quietly, in the safety of your personal workspace. Close your door if you have one. And then get off your duff and get out of the house and get out there and vote. Because some things never change. Here we go. Well, it's about time. Finally, vindication. Years of quivering voices in front of crowds, turning red and sweating when called on in school. Prayers for death or destruction before having to give a speech. Standing in the corner by yourself in social situations. The anxiety of not knowing someone's name not wanting to ask that name, and then worrying that you'll use the wrong name when forced to recall it for some reason, the absolutely draining feeling of being out and about for longer than a few minutes, the longing for home when you're gone for more than just the day, and and the list just goes on and on. The life of the introvert. Now, as I've stated before, I like to call myself a recovering introvert. I can get in front of crowds and speak. I can teach as long as I'm well-prepared. I do not like social situations. I'm definitely not a social butterfly. I'm a homebody. I like home. All of my stuff is there. I don't want to ask for or receive help from anyone. I don't want your sausage sample at the grocery store. I'd mostly just like to be invisible most of the time, truth be told. But I can exist in the world. I can go places and do things. I can adjust and adapt. Like I said, a recovering introvert. And... Just a side note of irony for me personally, probably a little bit of a laugh for you, one of my top love languages is apparently words of affirmation. So being an introvert, I don't want anyone to notice me, but I definitely want them to tell me that I'm a good boy. Unfortunately, I have no idea how to respond to a compliment, so that's pretty much my mind in a nutshell here. But finally, we introverts can unite I mean, in spirit, as we're all just going to stay home, no matter what we tell you we're going to do, we'll find excuses. Found on CNBC.com headline, a neuroscientist shares the four highly coveted skills that set introverts apart. Quote, their brains work differently. (laughs) Ha! My brain works differently. I'm differently brained. Wait a minute. This headline doesn't actually say if that's a good thing or not. Not really. I mean, highly coveted, but still, brains... Anyway, so article... 
author and neuroscientist Frederica Fabricius, and I'm not going to roll my R's every time, opens by telling me that large companies tend to favor the hiring of extroverts, to which I say, ugh, yeah, of course they do. But apparently we backward introverts have some good points that need not be overlooked. She cites a book by Susan Cain entitled Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World that Can't Stop Talking, which I'll be honest, I have now put on my very, very long Amazon wish list for maybe a day sometime in the next decade. And then she quotes from the book, quote, extroverts are more likely to focus on what's happening around them. It's as if extroverts are seeing what is, while their introverted peers are asking, what if? <laughs> Take that, short-sighted, surface-thinking extroverts. Now, she makes the generally unprovable claim that extroverts, much like introverts, have wonderful qualities. <laughs> Pfft, okay, well, let's just for the sake of moving on in this segment, sake of argument, let's just accept that the pandering is true. Then she says, and I think it's important to be perfectly accurate here, quote, but research shows that introverts may have the upper hand. Uh-huh. At this point, she dives into the four highly coveted skills that introverts possess, but before I begin, let me just remind you that jealousy or covetousness, or it's sinful. Don't hate me because you can't be me. That's all I'm trying to say. And remember, I'm quoting here, don't shoot the messenger. Number one, quote, introverts think more. Now, she states that the brain's gray matter processes and releases new information in the brain. Then she goes on to cite study after study. Well, no, just the one study, but it's a Harvard one, so you know it's good, that concluded two very crucial things. The introvert's brain works differently, and I think we can all agree on that, and that introverts have thicker gray matter than extroverts. <laughs> I've got a thick brain. Wait. In addition to not being some thin-brained extrovert, introverts apparently, quote, showed more activity in the frontal lobes where analysis and rational thought takes place. This was from a different study that focused on scanning brain activity of introverts versus extroverts, and it showed that even when we're all just relaxed, we introverts have more active brains, as judged by an increased blood flow. Number two, introverts can... Oh, look, shiny. No, sorry. <clears throat> Quote, introverts can focus longer. See? We're, we're loners, basically, sort of. Albert Einstein was an introvert who was thought by his teachers to be a loner, but as he stated, quote, it's that I stay with problems longer. Now, apparently introverts have the ability to focus for extended periods of time, most often alone, allowing them the ability to master specific skills. Extroverts, in contrast, don't generally have that kind of focus, and from what I've seen, spending alone time is not really their bag, baby. Number three, quote, introverts are often gifted in a specific field. She gives an interesting statistic here, quote, on average, introverts and extroverts are the same in terms of intelligence, but statistics show that around 70% of gifted people are introverts. Now, I'm assuming that's what people are talking about when they call me special. So the definition of gifted, at least in this case, is someone with, quote, above average intelligence or superior talent for something such as music, art, or math. She cautions that if those extroverts in the workplace believe that others are odd because they work alone, 
they don't want to go out after work or they're not great team players, be careful. That might be a gifted introvert you're unhappy with. And then number four, quote, introverts do the right thing. Quote, introverts tend to be less swayed by external events and driven more by their inner moral compass. Apparently, a super recent study, you know, from 2013, found that extroverts are generally more willing to just kind of follow the majority, even if they're wrong. They'll generally cave to social pressure. The study found, quote, the higher the pressure, a larger number of conforming responses are given by extroverts. In contrast, quote, there is no difference in conforming responses given to high and low pressure levels by introverts. So the point of this article, as short as it was, was to help employers handle us, you know, let's just say odd or special introverts. So to wrap it up, she gives some tips. And I'd say generally, yeah, I mean, I think she's right on with these. The first, respect boundaries. Basically, try not to interrupt an introvert working and don't expect an, an, you know, an immediate response. And I got to tell you, this is really true. Now, she says it takes up to 23 minutes for a person to refocus on a task. And I think that seems maybe just a bit long, but I do absolutely ignore emails, messages, etc. If I'm focused on something else, I want to get that to a point of completion before I move to something else. Next, she says brainstorm alone. Not everyone has to be in a huge meeting, <laughs> to which I say, uh, thank you. Next, shorten meetings. Now, I used to work for a company where I would start to feel a panic attack rising during every meeting. This was not the introvertedness. This was a thought of, I got to get out of here. It was just, it was just the worst. You were just trapped in there. Now, more recently, I worked with one specific plant with another company that had the opinion that if that meeting was scheduled for 60 minutes, by gum, we're going to go 60 minutes, even if we have to pack all 15 minutes of actual material into those 60 minutes. Now, I've had multiple people tell me that they love my meetings because I schedule enough time that we can use if needed, but generally I move quickly. I'm very organized. I present unique information so we're not just doubling up on everything, and I end early whenever I can. The next point was don't force a certain type of communication. See, we don't all want to talk on the phone. <laughs> I don't. We don't want the camera turned on right on our computer for online meetings. And, and no, I have a piece of tape over mine because, you know, just no. Next, provide the option for privacy. Make sure that you don't force introverts to be stuck in a large communal area. Introverts need to have some private spaces. And then she wraps this up with, with, Apparently, as a fellow introvert with one request or a demand to employers everywhere regarding introverts, quote, let my people rest. Amen, sister. Amen. So this was actually a very good article overall. Now, question. What would you say is the split between introverts and extroverts in the United States? Think about it for a second. What do you think the percentage split is? Well, if you're anything like me, you would think that extroverts make up about 70% of the general population, maybe more. Now, you may think that, but no, it actually doesn't appear so. According to the website psychreal.com, in an article entitled, Are Extroverts More Common Than Introverts? A Complete Guide, they collected some studies and poll results, although they qualify this by saying that there really is no conclusive data as to the actual split. Now, that said, 
First point of data, a Meyer-Briggs study stated that in the United States, 50.7% of the population are extroverts, 49.3% are introverts. So they also broke it down into men and women, and they said slightly less than half of men are extroverted, and over 60% of women are extroverted. The next piece of data was a study done in 2014 by the American Trends Panel, and it found in a relatively small study that 12% self-reported as extroverts, 5% self-reported as introverts, and 77% felt they were in the middle somewhere. That leaves 6%, and of course, those are the people that have no idea where they are in life, which is typical for just about any sort of a poll. Next, they cited a study from 1993. Yeah, I know we're getting old here, but let's take a look at it. This was on American lawyers, and it showed that 56.4% of lawyers in the United States are introverts. Now, to me, that looked a little surprising, but, you know, I guess they generally are people who have to work for hours of focused, alone type of work. And then a study from 1994 surveyed librarians. 63% were guesses, guesses. Yeah, you're right, introverts. Yeah, this was another Meyer-Briggs-based study. And then finally, a 2016 study about decision-making by both introverts and extroverts showed that nearly 80% of introverts use intuition to make decisions and that about half of extroverts make quick decisions. Now, no information was given as to if either of these were good or bad, but that's what they said. Now, another website, vividmaps.com, has a map for the rate of introverted versus extrovertedness by state. It appears that when this was done, and it looks like it was maybe 2018, West Virginia was the most introverted state in the union, which maybe that's why I'm here. I felt the call of my people. Maine was nearly tied for the most extroverted as well. Then it looks to be the northern Midwest states like North and South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, and then also Alaska. Now, the most extroverted states, uh, it's a tie, right, between New York and California. Probably not a big surprise there. And then we have Illinois, Georgia, Florida, New Jersey, and Texas, and they're all very close to tied for the same. But when you look at the splits, the most introverted state, West Virginia, has 53.3% introverts. The least introverted states of New York and California have 49.1% introverts. So the spread is only 4.2 percentage points. Essentially, the U.S. is a 50-50 split. Now, generally, we all kind of do our thing and find our place in the world, but the recent pandemic has uncovered some difficult truths. Introverts in general sat at home and were like, yeah, this is fine. This is what I do anyway. Now, we got out and we had a little bit of human contact here and there, and then we hid ourselves away again, and that was just fine. Extroverts, however, I think we can agree, they really struggled. Now, I think it would be interesting to see the split between the two with regard to depression and anxiety during the lockdown period. I think it'd be interesting to find the split between COVID shot takers and refusers. That's a different discussion for a different time, though. Now, I'm an introvert. There's no question about that at all, at least to me. I've had a bunch of people tell me that there's no way I'm an introvert, that I present as an extrovert. And yeah, I mean, in certain situations, I can, or at least I can force myself to do so. What others don't see is the unbelievable uncomfortableness on the inside in many of the situations I find myself in. Like teaching, and it doesn't matter the age. Oh, teaching kids is easy. No, it's not. It's horrible. 
presenting things. Uh, if I'm in crowds of random strangers, if I'm in crowds of people I generally know or at least that I align with politically or religiously, if I have to confront someone, if I meet a new person or new people, stepping into a new church, starting a new job, the list is pretty much endless. But at the same time, I understand that my introvertedness is what makes me a good teacher or a presenter. It allows me to make this podcast. See, I generally try to over-prepare and over-research. I don't want to be wrong about anything, ever. But when I am wrong, I want to know. Because if I'm truly wrong about something, I don't want to be wrong. So tell me what it is so I can be right about it. Now, I know that not everyone agrees with everything I say on this podcast. My sister, for instance, just raked me over the coals. I mean, just brutally destroyed me over one of my episodes. I mean, I thought that her chasing me around the house when I'm doing that laugh cry thing, trying to get away, I thought that would end with adulthood, but that's metaphorically what she did to me, just laughing the entire time. Okay, maybe not quite that, but she told me about something she and my youngest niece didn't really agree with, while my oldest nephew said he really enjoyed that segment, and it gave him some stuff to think about. And good, good on both of their accounts. My desire to be right, combined with someone presenting a different opinion on a subject, well, that forces me to either defend my position or admit that I was wrong. And if it means I need to spend some more time digging, well, so be it. That's a good thing. Now, this is one thing that introvertedness does, at least for me, and I doubt I'm alone in this, there can be extremes on both ends of the spectrum, of course, and extremes are rarely the best. But for most of us, we are both vital to the operation of this planet and the functionality of each other. What's interesting is that just as the author of the original article implied by creating an article to help employers deal with introverts, introverts are viewed as the oddballs, the outcasts, the recluse, and they're pushed to basically knock it off. Now, we see this in our church as well. We must all be fired up about a door-knocking campaign or about gathering in someone's home for a small group or getting together as a group for a potluck or some activity, right? Church, after all, is about community and fellowship and the gathering of the saints and the breaking of bread. The reality is that some of us don't really have any interest in doing those things at all. Not naming any names here. At least maybe not doing them all all the time. But, and I'm speaking in general terms from my own experience and observations, that's not usually an acceptable answer. We must want to do these things and spend this time and knock on those doors. I mean, that's what the Bible says, right? Always be ready to give an answer to everyone you come across, regardless of if they ask or not. And go and tell. Go to the houses. Go to the grocery store line. Go to the middle of the college campus and tell everyone. Just shout it out, the reasons for the hope you possess. In fact, I've heard multiple times from a few different evangelists that I, that I very highly respect that not doing these things are just fear of man, and that could possibly be sinful. And to that I say, bunk. I'm sorry for the four-letter word there. Now, I do agree that fear of man could be sinful, as any fear can be sinful, but just because some of us are naturals for the fellowship team and the foyer greeter corps, some of us are media booth workers and handymen. That's a good thing. If we're all made in the image of God, just as men were given certain logical and emotional characteristics of God, and women were given different logical and emotional characteristics of God, and all of both of the two genders were given a different mix of those two, I have to believe that God, being a perfectly complete God, has both the introverted side, you know, the meditating, not like Eastern mysticism, I mean the deep thinking, uh, contemplative side, 
in the quiet, the solitary side, as well as the extroverted side, you know, the outgoing, center of attention, people-loving side. Now, we see this in Jesus, don't we? There were many times where he had crowds just packed around him, and he taught, and he healed, he played with the kids, and then there were times when he had to get away, where he prayed to the Father, where he needed rest and seclusion from the crowds. We know that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. We know that all humans were made and are made in the image of God, not evolved from statically charged rock slime. When you look at these four points of contrast in the original article, introverts think more, introverts focus longer, introverts are often gifted in a specific field, and introverts do the right thing, well, the church, the mission of the church, needs introverts just as much as it needs the extroverts. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul is telling the Corinthians that their salvation, their identity, isn't solely based on who has more or what type of very specific gifts of the Spirit. No, everyone is different, and that's by design. Quote, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. As he chose. As who chose? As he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So, my little introverted friends, unless someone can make a very convincing case that I'm wrong— Stop feeling guilty that you don't really want to go to that men's gathering or that ladies' Bible study every week. Stop feeling bad that you didn't go caroling with the group. Stop feeling shame by walking past the potluck feast and out the door. That said, you are important to the church, and you are important in God's plan, so don't just hide at home. Do be a part of something. Use your talents, your time, your very specific way of viewing the world for Christ in some way in the church. Remember, it's not a matter of either singing in front of the church or staying home in your jammies watching the live stream. Well, sort of watching. I mean, it's on in the background. I mean, same difference. No, no, no. Find where you fit best. Plug in and do it. Always be ready to share the hope you have. Always be ready to present the gospel to someone you meet, someone you work with, someone you know when the time is right. And as you go about your day, be a representative for Christ in your actions, your words, and your integrity. For most of us, our introvertedness is not a defect. It's not something that needs to be fixed. It, too, is a gift from God, the way you were designed on purpose for a purpose. 
So use that thick brain of yours and figure out your role or roles. In fact, with how thick-headed, thick-brained you are, you know that per that other brain scan study, you'd have a much better chance of noodling this out in your sleep than Mr. Extrovert over there. Now, make sure your volume isn't up too high. Don't want to be disturbing someone around you. Look around. They're probably looking at you right now. Hmm. You don't want them to say something directly to you. I mean, what would you do then, right? Hmm. Article 2 of the Constitution set up the system for electing the president and vice president, the executive branch of the government. The original setup was for every state to appoint electors. The electors would cast their votes for two people, one of which had to be a non-resident of their own state. These votes would be tallied, a list would be compiled of all persons voted for, and their vote totals. And then the list is signed, certified, sealed, and sent to the Senate president. How'd you like all the messes? All of the lists were opened. All votes were totaled, and the person with the most votes would be the president. The second most votes would be the vice president. Of course, it had language in there about what to do for ties, etc., etc., but that was the basic process. Although we have electors today, our process is obviously different. Welcome back to the American Genesis. This is episode 28, part 10 of our look at the amendments. Today we're going to look at the 12th Amendment. Now, this amendment was proposed on December 9th, 1803 and ratified on June 15th, 1804, only six months after proposal, which is really fast as far as ratification of amendments go. Now up to this point in our young history as a country, we had had four elections. In 1789, George Washington received 69 votes and became president. John Adams received 34 votes to get the vice presidential nod. Both men were of the Federalist Party. In 1792, George Washington was again elected president, this time with 132 votes, and John Adams garnered 77 votes, again becoming the vice president. They were still both Federalists, and they beat out the Anti-Federalists. In 1796, John Adams, still a Federalist, received the most votes at 71, becoming president. He beat out Thomas Jefferson by only three votes, who, as a Democratic-Republican, became the vice president. Incidentally, Jefferson only beat out the other Federalist, Thomas Pinckney, by nine votes. And then Aaron Burr, Jefferson's fellow Democratic-Republican, finished a distant fourth with only 30 votes. In 1800, both the Federalist Party consisting of Adams and Pinckney and the Democratic-Republican ticket of Jefferson and Burr hatched their own individual plans to have certain electors basically throw away a vote, with the end result being Jefferson or Adams having one more vote than their running mates, so whoever won the presidential election would be assured to have a party-aligned president and vice president at the end. Since... That was determined by the top two vote-getters still. Well, this sort of worked, but uh, apparently they screwed it up in the last state to vote, South Carolina. They voted Democratic-Republican, but they didn't toss a vote. So Jefferson and Burr actually tied. And so per the rules of the Constitution, each state in the House of Representatives were allowed one vote to determine who would be president and who would be vice president. Jefferson took the top spot, with Burr becoming VP. So... The writing was on the wall that this system wasn't horribly useful. The possibility that you'd have a president and vice president of differing parties causing a political stalemate or potential debilitating conflict at the highest office, well, that potential was pretty high. 
And it only took a few elections before the parties themselves figured out a way to, you know, game the system. It was quite evident that a change was needed to the election process. Only weeks after the 1800 election, two potential amendments were proposed in the New York State Legislature to modify how they performed their voting. One of the state senators that was pushing for one of these amendments in New York was then elected to the House of Representatives and brought this idea of the amendment with him. Now, long story short, this amendment was debated in both the House and the Senate, and then, as I stated, it was proposed to the states having passed both the Senate and the House at the end of 1803. The text of the amendment is relatively extensive, but it made a fairly significant change to the election process. So let's take a look. Quote, The electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for president and vice president, one of whom at least shall not be an inhabitant of the same state with themselves. They shall name in their ballots the person voted for as president, and in distinct ballots the person voted for as vice president, and they shall make distinct lists of all persons voted for as president and all persons voted for as vice president, and of the number of votes for each, which lists they shall sign and certify and transmit sealed to the seat of the government of the United States directed to the president of the Senate. The President of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and the House of Representatives, open all the certificates and the votes shall then be counted. The person having the greatest number of votes for president shall be the president, if such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed. And if no person have such majority, then from the persons having the highest numbers, not exceeding three on the list of those voted for as president, the House of Representatives shall choose immediately by ballot the president. But in choosing the president, the votes shall be taken by states, the representation from each state having one vote. A quorum for this purpose shall consist of a member or members from two-thirds of the states, and a majority of all the states shall be necessary to a choice. And if the House of Representatives shall not choose a president whenever the right of choice shall devolve upon them before the fourth day of March next following, then the vice president shall act as president as in the case of the death or other constitutional disability of the president. The person having the greatest number of votes as vice president shall be the vice president, if such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed. And if no person have a majority, then from the two highest numbers on the list, the Senate shall choose the vice president. A quorum for the purpose shall consist of two-thirds of the whole number of senators, and a majority of the whole number shall be necessary to a choice. But no person constitutionally ineligible to the office of president shall be eligible to that of vice president of the United States. Okay, told you. Kind of long, right? So let's break this down just a little bit, try to make it a little clearer. This is their second attempt at using the representative republic that they had created in order to elect the president and vice president. Doesn't seem like it should be that hard, but clearly our early leaders were trying to figure out the most fair way to elect the team that would allow decisions to be made that would create unity within the executive branch and still represent the will of the people. The largest change as compared to the original entry in the Constitution was that now the president and the vice president would run separately and be voted on separately. Now, this forced candidates to declare for one or the other, sort of, 
right? I mean, I wouldn't think that they could declare for both as, you know, what would you do if you won both, right? But no, not right. In fact, in the 1808 election, James Madison, the Democratic Republican, was elected president and George Clinton was elected vice president. But Clinton also ran for president in this election, garnering six votes away from Madison from some electors that disliked Madison. Interesting. So now we're moving closer to modern days where we have a ticket that runs a president and vice president combo platter, but we aren't quite there yet there's still the distinct possibility that a president and a VP could be from different parties. If you have a well-liked candidate that people voted for, they could disregard party affiliation. Interestingly enough, that never happened. I mean, you'd think, with electors doing the electing, it would be odd for them to vote one way for one seat and another way for the other. And yes, apparently it's so odd that it didn't happen. Anyway, back to this amendment. So now we have two ballots, as it were, but beyond the two rather than the one, the process was done essentially the same as it was done before. Each elector would vote for president and vote for vice president, one of which could not be a resident of the same state as the elector. Just as before, the votes would be compiled into a list. That list would be signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. Sorry, sent to the president of the Senate who would open the lists, tally the votes, and declare the totals. As before, there were caveats to this. In order to be awarded president, you had to get the majority of the total number of electors, and if nobody attained that, then the top three vote-getters would be voted on by the House of Representatives with one vote per state, with a minimum of two-thirds of the states being present for the vote. If they can't or won't come to a conclusion there, then the newly elected vice president would act as the president. So, as for the vice president, if nobody got a majority, then the top two would go to the Senate for a vote, again, requiring two-thirds of the state's voting. So, if nothing went right, at a minimum, a vice president would be elected, and the country would continue on. Now, like I said, there was still the chance that different parties could be elected to the two offices, since the same party candidates may have run together, but it was not a single ticket. That said, it never happened. Well... Not exactly, but, but it didn't happen because of the election process. So after this amendment, the country ran as is for the next 62 years. And to put that into some sort of perspective, that's one-fourth of this country's history if you go back to declaring independence in 1776. The next amendment happened right when the dual-party president-vice-presidential combo was elected. The amendment was proposed on January 31st of 1865, Abraham Lincoln won re-election to the office of president as a Republican, and a Democrat, Andrew Johnson, won the vice presidency. Lincoln's convention, the National Union National Convention, chose Johnson, being a war Democrat, to be Lincoln's running mate to try to bring unity between the North and the South. Lincoln was assassinated in April of 1865, the Civil War ended in May of 1865, and the 13th Amendment was ratified on December 6th of 1865. The amendment in question was, of course, the amendment to abolish slavery. It's a shame that Lincoln didn't live long enough to see all he had fought for come to at least some sort of a conclusion. Now, that's where we're going to stop, and I know, I know, I'm ending this one early, but let's be honest, I don't want to get into the 13th Amendment in this segment. It's a very short two-part amendment with huge implications. We want to make sure we look at that one closely, not rush through it. So, that will have to be next week. And with that, all that's left to say is, until next time. 
Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Well, it's been six weeks. They ain't kidding that the older you get, the faster time moves. Pros to cons to that, but uh, it is what it is, I guess, right? So here we are again, yet another goal update. Seems like only a week ago. I'd... Anyway, let's jump right in, huh? Regarding my weight loss. So the last couple weeks have been okay, right? But kind of lackluster as compared to the first few weeks and also compared to my hopes and dreams. Well, no longer. Apparently, the stars aligned, prayers were answered, and my stupid body did something right. So over the last week, I lost a totally realistic, highly repeatable four pounds. That brings my six-week weight loss to 15 pounds, putting me at, wait for it, 199.4. Yep, back under two bills. Now, four pounds sounds like a lot in a week. And for someone with not a huge amount to lose, yeah, it definitely is. But that's why it's better to look at the averages, right? This puts my weekly average at two and a half pounds loss per week. Now, that's still kind of high, and I really don't believe that I'll sustain that over the long run. But, yeah, you know, who knows, right? The, the body does weird things. Now, I can confidently say that at this point, per my scientifically calibrated uh, belt, I've lost about one to maybe one and a quarter inches on my waist thus far. Of course, Tuesday night, being the night after I did my weekly weigh-in, I took the kid on a father-daughter outing or date or whatever. Basically, I've got a couple years left with the crazy kid, so I want to try and do some small things at least monthly as we can kind of fit it in. Remember, that was one of my goals. So tonight we went to her favorite Chinese buffet, the Dragon Garden, where she gets a plate of white rice and crispy chicken and then usually follows it up with uh, another plate of white rice and crispy chicken. That's all she ever gets, but she likes it. And then we went to see Puss in Boots on one of the theaters it's still actually hanging out in. Uh, So, of course, popcorn, you know, you got to eat the popcorn, right? Now, I was careful, of course, but, you know, so getting back trying to guess at what I did for a calorie intake, um, got a workout in, looks like I'm about break even. So we should be, should be okay for that day. The reality is I'm okay with a splurge here and there. Uh, I just don't want to make it all the time, you know, like I did, uh, the last year, year and a half. Anyway, back to the goal. It's a solid green as I'm technically four weeks ahead of the plan I had set out in January. Moving on to reading. Hey, what's that over there? (laughs) Run, 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 run. Yeah, so this week, due to some extenuating circumstances that required a solid amount of my time, reading was at a minimum. That's where we had to sacrifice a little bit there. I only managed 30 measly pages this week, well under the 70 pages I would need to maintain my goal. That said, because I had that nice little initial boost at the beginning of the year, I'm still at 121% of my goal, so a solid green. I definitely need to try to pick it up in the weeks to come, however. 
As for finishing my Bible in a year by the end of September, this one's coming along nicely. It's progressing nicely. I'm getting some reading in on the weekends. And of course, I get to read around lunchtime at work just about every day. So this goal is moving a little faster than the pace I had set. Last week, I was at 116% of the pace. This week, I come in at 121% of the goal pace. So again, this one stays a solid green. And finally, devotions. Another week with only one missed day, so six out of seven, ahead of my five of seven goal pace. That moves me from 102.7% of my goal pace to an even 105%. It's not that I'm trying to race ahead and beat my goal as fast as I can, but outpacing the goals that I thought were set reasonably is a good thing. So this one remains as solid green as well, and that makes this the second week in a row with solid greens across the board. So that's it. That's the update. Let's see if I can keep this going through the next week. So as always, if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, just let me know. Okay, bye.